This is the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN. 1-800-919-3776. Also via Twitter at Hardesty ESPN at ESPN NY 98 underscore 7 FM. We got a poll question for you on Twitter. If both players are available via trade as a baseball fan, which player would you want? Ortani or Juan Soto? Right now, and for most of the first hour, it was neck and neck. 50-50, 50-50. Right now, Juan Soto with a 51-49% lead over Shohei Ohtani. Taking your phone calls at 1-800-919-3776. We'll continue with that, and then we'll move on and talk a little NBA and a little, baseball, a little basketball before we leave you here. Uh, let's, go to, uh, let's go to Fran and Massapequa. Fran, you're next on 98.7. What's up, buddy? How you doing? I'm doing great, Fran. What's going on, partner? No, I love listening to you. Thank you, sir. All right, listen, two things I got to talk about. One, the bad backs, an incredible New Yorker, one of the greatest players ever, Mike Bossy. Okay. Bad back. Cost him, he, uh, he, he cost him a five years, I would say, at the end of his career. He only played mm-hmm. uh, 10 seasons, but he was an incredible player and a bad back. So you were just naming some big time guys with bad backs, you know? Yes. Thank you for that. You're right. All right. And, that's and now, uh, with the Mets. Got to get a bat in there. Yes. Got to get a nice bopper in there after Alonzo. This way they got to face each one. You know what I mean? They got to either face Alonzo or the big guy that we get, but we need that big bat. And I, 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 about the Otani and the uh, Soto, uh-huh. if I needed a closer, I would take Otani and make him a hitter full-time and a closer. What about huh. that idea? Thanks, pal. Soto's great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I hear you, Fran. Thank, thanks for the phone call. That's interesting. Thought I haven't thought about that. Um, the fact that you bring Otani in as a closer, uh, you could actually, <laughs> you could actually <laughs> take him off the field and bring him in, right? All right, come on, come on in here, close this guy. Come, come in here and get this guy. <laughs> that would be interesting. That would be, that would be. I hadn't thought of it that way. That would be interesting. Um, you know, I don't know if he'd agree to it, but but it would be interesting. I, I'll tell you that. Um, backs are. It, it, it affects what you do. Everything. I mean, everything. How can you swing? Like, how, how are you going to stretch out? How are you... For a player as great as Mike Trout, who unfortunately has been playing in anonymity because of the fact that the Angels don't make the playoffs ever. Ever. And he's and he, for some reason, you know, over the past couple of years, he's had some injuries. So, you know, whom many baseball play, people, baseball people think is the best player in the game, bar none. I mean, for his availability to be the way it is and for him to not have the, you know, visibility and to be able to help his team, that's a crazy thing. So, listen, if you're the Angels and you're looking at this and you're saying, when, when Otani's contract comes up, am I, going to be able to, am I going to be able to pay him for the fact that we're not winning? We're not winning. We're not even, other than the first couple of months of the season, this year, we're not even in people's conversation. Tony's in the car. He's next on 98.7. What's up, Tony? Hey, thanks for taking my call. You got uh, it, Tony. Just, just a couple of things with the uh, with respect to, uh, you know, sustainability, as you, you said a little while ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a diehard Jets fan, and mm-hmm. – Look, we went to back-to-back championship games, 
and we haven't sniffed the playoffs since then, and that's over 11 years coming yeah. into this season. So, you know, sustainable. I mean, look at the Braves. The Braves was sustainable for, for the 90s, making the most World Series appearances in the 90s. But they only got one championship out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they win the division year in, year out. Not so much now, but, you know, lately they have. But, you know, sustainable, uh, I'd rather have a championship. This okay. is the longest the Yankees have ever gone. Without without winning a championship, one championship in 22 years, mm-hmm. and I do agree with the judge thing. I think he is the next captain. This is the longest the Yankees have gone without making having a captain mm-hmm. as well. Uh, when Jeter was named, they they let Paul O'Neill retire as like a show of a tip of the hat, saying to a veteran, "Thanks for your time, but now we're going to make Jeter the captain." And I mm-hmm. think they did the same thing with uh, Gardner, you know, waiting for Gardner to leave, and now you can name Judge the captain. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. All right, Tony, that's interesting. Thanks for the phone call. I hear what you're saying. Uh, I just think that, listen, Judge has carried himself. But the way he's carried himself, he deserves to be the captain of that team. Okay. Production does have a lot of part to do with it, too. And with all due respect to Brett Gardner, who was a very good player for the Yankees, um, I don't know that his production would have qualified him to be a captain uh, because I think it's the combination of both. I think it's not only what you, and, and he was popular around the team. There's no question about that, but I don't know. Your captain has got to be a guy that, you know, he, he leads by not only example, but on and off the field. And I think Gardner did, but judge did it better. So while I understand what you're saying with respect to longevity and the amount of time that he spent as a Yankee for Gardner, that they would wait and give it to to Judge. I just think that part of it also, uh, to be fair, is was Judge going to be available? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, with all the injuries, you can make a. You know, players will tell you that they, when they're injured, they don't feel like they're part of the team. That's what they say. I don't feel like I'm part. I, I some will even go as deep as to say I don't feel I can say anything because I'm not out there. So because of the fact of his, you know, availability, the injuries that he suffered earlier in his career, the fact that he was out a lot, you knew he could hit, but he was out a lot. And so I think the fact that he has stabilized his health and things have gotten a little better, I think that's the other reason why I think now you can consider him a a captain. Jay's in Jersey. What's up, Jay? Hey, how you doing, Mr. Hardesty? Thank you for taking the time. You got it, Jay. What's up? Well, I'm a big Jets fan, so it's okay. We transition to the football segment. Is that yeah, sure, okay? for a second. You go ahead. Go ahead. We had a previous Jet caller on. We had a previous caller on about the Jets, so you can follow him. All right. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about the Jets real quick. You've been covering the team for a while, since I believe 2005, if my memory serves correctly. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering, because there's the energy, the chemistry, it seems so palpable, and there's an electricity in the air. I was just wondering, because you covered some good Jet teams and some really bad teams. Mm-hmm. Where do you think this team and the culture that Salah and Douglas are trying to create is coming along? Do you see the progress, or do you need to see some wins first? Thank you for taking the time. Jay, thanks for the call. I need to see them play. <laughs> Jay, I need to see them play. I need to see uh, them in pads. I need to see what the young players are doing. I need to see what the scheme is. I need to see how players have improved. I need to see a bunch of stuff. 
And I, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. There are a lot of positive things coming out of Jets camp. That's good. There's a lot of positive things coming out of a lot of camps in the National Football League. There are just so many questions with this team that it, it, you have to – the only thing that answers questions is competition. And once they get on the field, you'll start to see some things. Uh, I would pay more attention, obviously, to preseason games a little bit, even though people aren't even going to play, but the rookies. Now, from what I'm hearing, and we've had some conversations with Rich Zamini over the past weeks, uh, the rookies like Sauce Gardner, you could see his, you could see talent there. Okay, you could see some things. Uh, the rookies seem to have been showing some things. That's good. Uh, Zach Wilson had a pretty good day the other day. Yesterday, threw an interception that was returned by DJ Reed for 100 yards. Okay, so, you know, you got to see him play. It, it's, it's just too early. I understand you want to be encouraged. I understand that this is a team, as the previous caller mentioned, that has not made the playoffs in over a decade. That's a long time in the National Football League. I mean, there's a lot of worst to first in the NFL. Jets have not been able to do that. So, I like Robert Sala. I'd like to see how he's grown from year one to year two because, you know, when you're ahead, we always talk about players growing, right? What do we want to see from Zach Wilson in the second year? What do we want to see from Mackay Becton uh, this year, his third year? He was out last year, so this is really his second year. What do we want to see? What do I want to see in Robert Sala? Okay, what do I need to see from him? What do I need to see in how he controls his coordinators? What do I need to see in how the aggressiveness that he had in San Francisco defensively that he does not have here, partially because of the talent? But still, sometimes you have to be even more aggressive or, or be more chancy, quote-unquote, because you don't have talent. So you're trying to stir things up. So there's a number of different things that I have to see about this Jet team uh, before I, I, I can really give you a beat on it. Because, listen, there's been Jet teams that look good in the preseason, awful in the, post, in, in the regular season. And there's been Jet teams that have looked bad in the preseason, Surprising, not great, but surprising. Look at the look at the um, second year under Todd Bowles. People said this was the worst football team in the National Football League after they missed the playoffs by going ten and six. Worst football team won five games. Nobody thought they would win one. They won five. So you just don't know. You got to watch them play. One eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six. We'll continue the conversation next on ninety eight seven ESPN. <laughs> Let's see what Benson in the story has on his mind. Hey, Benson. Hey, hey. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, What's up? If uh, if I have to choose, first of all, let me preface saying that I don't think any long-term contract is worth it. And and Mike Trout, who I love and is a generational player, will become that poster boy. But not one player is worth. I'm a Mets fan, and uh, Lindor's contract is not going to be worth it. Does that mean that I don't want Lindor? No, no. I love the Lindor trade and sign. Uh, and we have a, a, a distinct advantage because that large contract is not going to hinder us from signing a Scherzer. So, really, in all uh, you know, essence, it's it's like monopoly money when we talk about the Mets. So, but generally speaking, every long-term contract, no, none of them are worth it. You, you know, look at Pujols when he went to the Angels. Look at Harper; he leaves the Nationals. They win the World Series, and the Phillies are nothing with or without Harper. So, you know, and and. Let me tell you, I think the Yankees are in a very tough spot with Judge because he's a little more of a difficult thing because he's going to want at least eight years, and he's already 30, and the guy's having a monster season. So, But if I had to choose, 
And again, we're playing with Monopoly money as a Mets fan. I would mm-hmm. think, and you can't go wrong with either or, I would go with Otani only because he's a dual threat. Got you. I hear what you're saying, Benson. Thanks for the phone call. That's what makes him so intriguing. But then the question becomes, if you go with Otani, which part of his game do you think is going to deteriorate first? Okay, do you think it's going to be the pitching that's going to deteriorate or you think it's going to be the hitting? In other words, will the arm go or the bat speed? What's going to be the thing to go first? And I think uh, you're right with – and this is, this, is the, this is the curious thing about long-term contracts now that all teams in all sports have to deal with. Uh, is that – well, really not football, but mostly uh, baseball and, and basketball. Is that, yeah, especially baseball, what are you looking at for judge in year seven? Eight, let's say you give him the eight-year deal. What do you expect him to be in years seven and eight? And how do you compensate around that knowing that the production could decline? Or the production could continue? Like, we don't know. Aaron Judge is a different, is a different player here. We've not seen a guy... In this era. Now, obviously, people, Yankee fans would say, well, Dave Winfield was a great player. Dave Winfield played forever. Dave Winfield played till what? His 40s. So, but for Aaron Judge in this era, for him to be able to give you the amount of production that he has, and I will say this, I think because of sabermetrics, and your ability to rest players as much as players get rested in this day and age, you could save a little wear and tear on him as he gets older by resting him a little bit. Because eventually he's going to be, you know, in his lady, if, if you do sign him to an eight-year deal, in year seven and eight, it's probably going to be a DH full-time, right? It's going to be a DH. You give him some days off. He's got partial DH. I mean, so that could be. Or he could shock us and because – he takes care of his body because he's a great athlete. You see what he's able to do, okay? He may be able to continue to give you uh, unbelievable production. We just don't know, okay? You're kind of you're kind of leery about it because the fact that he he's had injury histories early in his career, but maybe he's through with it. Maybe he doesn't get injured. Maybe he's not going to have the same. Maybe he'll have durability. Maybe his production will not be that far off. If I said to you, at age, hypothetically, the Yankees sign him, and if I say to you, at age 37, Aaron Judge gives you, what, 25 home runs, 80 RBI? Would you take that? If you knew that that's what you were going to get in year seven from Aaron Judge, would you sign him to an eight-year deal? 270? Let's say he hits about 250, okay? 250, 20 home runs, 70 runs better than it? I'd take that bet. I would sign him. If, I'm, if I knew, of course, which you don't, but if I could get that type of production from him, even in the seventh year of his contract, <laughs> that'd be a no-brainer because I know the first four or five years are going to be outstanding. Buddha's in the Bronx. Hey, Buddha, you're next on 98.7. Very good to have you back. The human eye was off. How you been, bro? <laughs> I'm doing okay, Buddha. Thanks. 
Yeah, you know, I got a point on Judge, and I got a point on your boy Julius Randle, but with your poll question, real quick, I mean, I'm going to go with Soto. You know, like, uh, Tony, he's a dual threat and all that, but, you know, inevitably, at some point, he's going to be a one threat. Mm-hmm. And typically, guys who have, like, multiple skill sets like that, I mean, this is always very different, but they fall off the cliff fast. You know, it's not like a, you know, what do you call it, a precipitous drop? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, you know, I, I think I would go with Soto. Now, with the judge, listen, you know, losing Castillo, you know, I'm going to put that, I'll put down on Cashman, you know, and especially if he doesn't get it, forget about just getting another starter. They need another starter and a bullpen person. I don't know who's available, but um, that's Cashman's responsibility. The judge contract, I mean, you said it before, we've discussed it a thousand times. Um, This is a Hal Steinbrenner type of a thing. I mean, listen, can you imagine if he breaks that 61 record and they don't sign him for whatever reason? (laughs) You know, man, listen, I mean, people, people, you think people losing themselves now. It'll be unbelievable. So, you know, how, I mean, you got to find some kind of happy medium. Obviously, you're not giving anybody no 10 years at at 30. You give them 8 mil and listen, straight up, I mean, I give you 47. Uh, 45, maybe even 50 for like the first, let's say, four to five years. Then, you know, at the back, you know, we lower it down a little bit. But you give him enough cash to where it, it becomes like really impossible for him to, to, to move uh, move on or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's got to be a way you could work that out. Like you said, if the old man was alive, it would have been done already. They played themselves in the beginning. I mean, it, it's nice, you know, to, to be judicious with money. And uh, let the player bet on himself. I mean, I think he obviously won that bet. So, you know, they got to make that happen. And that's all Hal Steinbrenner. I don't want to hear about no Brian Cash with that. Hal Steinbrenner is going to tell you how much money you can spend for Judge. Right. Absolutely. But um, real quick with basketball, mm-hmm. with, 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 your, with your boy Julius Randle. You know, I had a lot of time to sit down and think. I remember before you were talking about, you know, you know what could happen. Could Julius Randle have a bounce-back season? Um, I'm going to put a lot of it on Julius Randle in terms of the way he behaved and the way he was acting and, you know, being a bad, you know, example for a lot of the younger guys. But with the Knicks, you know, you know, like I said, outside perspective looking in, whether they get Spider Mitchell or not, you know, Mitchell Robinson is a situational player. He cannot play 30 minutes on the court because, you know, the NBA is different now. They'll put a guy out there that will pull him out to the three-point line. It'll be ineffective. Mm-hmm. So if I'm Tibbs, and I mean I know Tibbs doesn't like to listen to anybody. He knows it all. We've discussed this a thousand times. Whether they get Mitchell or not, whoever's left on the team, if they have Mitchell, and if they don't get Mitchell, mm-hmm. with what you have, you have a surplus of guards. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you need to come into the 20, whatever century in, 21st, 22nd, whatever century this is, you need to come into that century and play ball the way the rest of the teams are playing ball. Julius Randle has got to be made to play at least 15 to 20 minutes at the five. That's his Mm. best advantage. He's not the most athletic guy, but at that position, he'll be able to draw out, like we discussed about a minute ago about Mr. Robinson, draw out the other team's big man away from the basket. He can hit threes. We don't want him taking 40 of them, but he can hit some threes. And off the dribble, that will give him an advantage. The Knicks have got to get the tempo up, especially now since they got Brunson. They got to do it, huh? You're absolutely right, uh, Buddha. Thanks for the phone call, man. Good talking to you. Uh, the Knicks, 
I don't know. I guess if you looked at pace of play stats, <laughs> they got to be near the bottom <laughs> because they wait, they wait for Randall. And God help him if he's bringing the ball up. That's even worse. Not only is it a bad pace of play, it's turnovers and pace of play. So um, that's the scary thing there. No, they definitely have to – they definitely need to pick up their tempo. Brunson is a guy who can do that, can push it a little bit. I mean, even by the fact that you have trouble scoring, just beating the other, the other team down before they set up their defense is a smart thing to do. So I would think that that would be definitely an option there that, that they would do. Uh, I know that uh, Thibodeau is, is really a defensive guy, but, you know, and to be fair, sometimes you look at coaches on the sideline in the NBA. I mean, I saw it with Steve Kerr with the Warriors in, in, the, in, in, the, in the finals. And he's waving the guys on, and Curry's just like, yeah, okay, bringing it up. My speed, I'm good. <laughs> I'm chilling. I'm bringing it up. Yeah, I, okay. You know, sometimes coaches want you to push the basketball, and guys don't push the basketball. <laughs> sometimes they just don't. So I, I do think that that is something that is needed. The Knicks do need to be able to pick up the tempo a little bit. And I think if Evan Fournier is still on this team, I think picking up the tempo would be even more advantageous for him because that would get him to get down to the – the court quicker that maybe he could hit an open three as opposed to a contested three, which so often he would get the ball behind the line and somebody would be there defensively. And now you got to reset your whole offense because he's not a, he's not a guy that can consistently beat his defender off the dribble. He's a guy that's a catch and she's a better catch and shoot guy. Just as some guys are that that's his thing. He seems better catch and shoot. Occasionally if he can get somebody, he can fake and they expect him to hit the three and go to the basket and, hit a scoop shot or layup or something of that nature. But primarily, he is a catch-and-shoot guy. That's when he's the most effective, especially from three, judging from what I saw from him last season. Now, maybe it's different, but but that's how I that's how I view him. And, yeah, picking up the tempo can only help that slow and boring Nick offense. 1-800-919-3776. we got more calls. We're checking on the poll question, and we'll talk to you next on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs> It's the Larry Harsty Show on 98.7 ESPN. We're announcing the death of Bill Russell. His family has uh, put forth an announcement that the NBA legend, Hall of Famer, tremendous player, has passed away at the age of 88. According to the letter that was posted by the family, he passed away in his sleep. So Bill Russell, a civil rights activist, 11-time NBA champion, has passed away. It is a sad day. Um, for the NBA and for a player of Bill Russell's stature who is arguably the greatest winner, one of the greatest winners in sports. To think that he won 11 titles uh, with the Boston Celtics, that he also was a player coach to win a title, that when you talk about how defense has changed in the NBA, he is the example. Uh, all from the fundamentals of being able to block a shot without the ball going out of bounds and just starting fast breaks with Boston and all the other things that you you know you talk about with Bill Russell. Uh, that's on the basketball court. But when you also discuss uh, situations with Bill Russell as an activist, as a person who understood his role as an African American with with the broad shoulders of some of the experiences that he went through and to be able to not only understand that he had a responsibility 
to lend his voice because of his success and because of the need to show people uh, that things needed to be changed in an era where civil rights and racism was at an all-time high in the 60s. So it is sad to report that Bill Russell has passed on. Uh, personal note, I had the pleasure and the honor of interviewing Bill Russell a number of years ago. And one of the things that really stood in my mind was a conversation that it was that conversation in that conversation rather was him sharing. And there's always some conversation about and talks about, well, in his later years, he didn't do autographs and he had this thing with Boston and while Boston, you know, he was a winner there, but the fans didn't treat him that well and so on and so forth. And, he seemed to be evil and they had a retirement party, something of retirement, so he didn't come. There's just so many different stories. And I remember having a conversation with him and he said to me that while he was winning championships for the Celtics, that one day he came home to his house and that because of the racism of that era, when he came into his house, somebody had broke in and defecated on his bed. And that was some of the pain and anguish that he dealt with personally because of the color of his skin in an area where people just didn't think the right way. And so um, it's just really sad to think about what people go through. And we're not sure about people's journey we look at professional athletes and we make statements and we have our opinions and we, you know, we assume things. But sometimes, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there are some occasions when athletes do things because of their experiences. We are a product. We all are a product of our experiences and we all are not perfect. And sometimes we react the right way and the wrong way because we're human beings and because emotions run high. So that's why it's, it's important that we don't judge folks because we don't know what people have gone through. We don't know their journey. We don't know uh, the whole story and how people react to it. And we don't know what they've gone through and what they've dealt with. And to know that Bill Russell was as great as he was and continued to be the fabulous player he was in the NBA, to me, one of the top 10 players in NBA history, not because of his scoring, but because of his leadership, how he played defense, and the fact that he's got 11 rings. So for me, and we can always, you know, I, we, we always talk about how you rate players in eras and so on and so forth, and I get that. And it's hard to rate players because players transcend eras and and so on and so forth, and they do, and it is, because situations are different. But when somebody wins 11 championships and does so as a player and a player coach, has a trophy named after him because of his impact on the sport, he is, for me, one of the greatest players in NBA history. And it's sad that we lost him today at the age of 88. 1-800-919-3776. Let's get your thoughts about Bill Russell. Your thoughts, maybe, maybe many of you may have seen him play. 
I had the chance to see him play in the later year of his career, maybe the last year or two, maybe. Um, I do remember hearing about him all the time growing up. Everybody was like, oh, Bill Russell, Bill Russell's great. When you when people talk basketball, they talked, when people talked basketball, right? My In my circle at that time, they spoke about Jerry West. They spoke about Oscar Robertson. I'm, I'm not talking Knicks and Knicks fans, right? They spoke about Jerry West, they spoke about Oscar Robertson, and they spoke about Bill Russell. Uh, those were the players that I heard most about because of their impact on the sport. Obviously, Jerry West because of his shooting ability. Obviously, Oscar Robinson because of his shooting, rebounding, and passing ability. And obviously, Bill Russell because of how dominant he was and was able to win multiple games against, because he had a better team, but because uh, able to win multiple games and series against Will Chamberlain, who was, at that time, the, the dominant center in the NBA, all right? You look at record books today and a bunch of scoring titles that are listed are owned by Will Chamberlain, okay, because of his dominance. I get it. You're going to tell me who was the big men that were playing against him. You're going to give me all the different scenarios, and you are right. Nevertheless, he was still great, and Bill Russell was able to do whatever he needed to do and win games and series and championships against a Will Chamberlain that was, at that time, the most dominant center in the NBA. They changed rules for Will Chamberlain <laughs> because of his greatness. So we'll talk a little bit about Bill Russell. We'll get your thoughts there. It also is a sad but a, a good transition to move to the NBA and um, along with your thoughts about Bill Russell, as, they, as, as you call us at 1-800-919-3776, also want to get your thoughts on what's going on with the local teams as far as these trades are concerned. I'm now reading that the Donovan Mitchell trade continues to be on hold and that Utah is looking to get other people involved. And I said it before, I'm going to say it again. I like how the Knicks are handling this. I do. I, there's no rush. You, if, if you don't get Donovan Mitchell, then you don't get Donovan Mitchell. You cannot give up more than you should to get him. Now, I understand that draft choices are, are assets and you should use them as you can. Would I be concerned as we move further down? 20, I think there was a 2027 draft choice or something of that nature that was a part of the deal. I might be concerned about that because I'm not sure what the team is going to look like over the next five years. I don't know that I want to go into the depth of my draft choices that way, in addition to having to give up players as well. All right? For me, it should be either I'm giving you one or two players and four draft choices, or I'm giving you six draft choices and maybe and, and maybe one player, but I should not have to give you five players, four or five players, and four or five draft choices. Like that that doesn't seem right to me. One eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six will get your thoughts on the loss of the late great Bill Russell and your thoughts on the NBA next. It's the Larry Hardesty show on ninety eight seven ESP. Mike's in Manhattan. Mike, you're next on the Larry Hardesty Show. Hello. Hello. Hey, Mike. Hello. 
Yeah, it's Michael, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, so Bill Russell is indubitably great. People don't quite understand. Uh, all those championships were done in the spirit of sacrifice. He could have scored a little more. And look who he battled. Chamberlain, Unsell, Willis Reed, Nate Thurman. He battled the great centers. And, you know, even Eldon Hayes. And what he did was they had Kuzi before he came. They had Charmin. And then, but they didn't win big until they got him. And, yes, talking about Steph Curry changing the game, Russell changed the game. And when I hear people like J.J. Reddick talk about guys in his era played against plumbers and firemen, that's disgusting. He, these people today, they don't have any idea. The athlete today doesn't, don't have any idea of the spirit of sacrifice Russell gave. Blocking shots. He was a great, great player. Definitely, you know, top 10, maybe probably top five. Uh, and he's ahead of every player except LeBron that's currently active. So this, this whole day should be... Um, geared to talking about the great legacy of Russell. He did so much for people uh, outside and on the court, and he was clutch. How many people are clutch today? How many of these great superstars are clutch like he was? So thank you for letting me talk. No problem, Michael. Thanks for checking in. Um, There's there's, there's no question what you said is true about uh, Bill Russell. He He was a tremendous player. And once again, you talk about right, changing the game, which he did. I mean, uh, was it 13 years he played for the Celtics? 11 rings, 11 championships in 13 years. And while we, while we uh, talk about him not being a great scorer, right? But he still averaged in his career over 15 points a game. 22 and a half rebounds a game. 22 and a half rebounds a game on average. <laughs> he was good. There's no question. He was good. And um, and in the playoffs, he was even better. Okay, He was even better. So when you understand what he did for that Celtics team and those Celtics teams, to be able to uh, because when you think of the Celtics previously, even during the Knicks championship years, back in the 60s and 70s, during the, uh, that culture of pushing the basketball and being the fast break team that Boston was, was keyed from Bill Russell blocking shots and getting the ball out and having them go on the break. That's how you know. I remember watching basketball later years when you know, both had retired and, and Oscar Robertson was doing games. He was an analyst. And he, most of the time you'd listen to him on the, I believe it was CBS at the time when CBS had the NBA uh, years ago. And you hear him say, oh, here comes the green wave. And, and that was that push, that, that, that fast break that was started with those championship teams, those teams that won, those 11 championship teams. That's what made... Uh, the Celtics great was pushing the basketball, beating you down before your defense set up and having the great defense of Bill Russell. 
And the tricky part of him, which I don't know that we'll ever see that again, right? I don't know in this era of sports, be it basketball or, uh, you know, probably that would be the sport that I would think it would be that would happen, that it happened the most. I don't think you'll ever see a player coach again. I just don't. I, I don't think you'll ever see that scenario, that, that type of thing in sports where you have a player coach, where somebody's going to, you know, not only play the game, but co- and then have the, then go through the, the idea of putting themselves in the game or taking themselves out of a game. But there were a bunch of player coaches, I think, in the 60s in the NBA. I think Lenny Wilkins was a player coach, just off the top of my head. I know Bill Russell was a player coach, obviously. But that's not an easy thing to do. And uh, for him to be able to coach after, you know, Red Arback, the legendary Celtics coach, leaves, and then for him to continue that style and that championship, of course, he still had the same players. So that made it a little bit easier. But it's, it's just amazing. It's just amazing what he was able to do. And in his career, even in the, uh, let's see, in his career, the lowest amount of rebounds he averaged in his career was his final year. No, the year before his final year, 67, 68. He averaged 18.6 rebounds per game. Here's his rebounding totals in his career. As a rookie, 19.6 in 56-57. Then it goes 22.7, 23, 24, 23.9, 23.6 for two straight years, 24.7, 24 24.1, 24 22.8, 21, 18, 18.6, 19.3 in his last year, and a career average of 22.5. And in the playoffs... He averaged 24.9 rebounds and just over 16 points per game. So even in the biggest spots where isn't that how we judge players and performances, right? That's how we judge them. How do you perform with pressure? How do you perform with games on the line? How do you perform when the most is expected of you? How do you perform when the competition is at its best? How do you perform when everybody's watching and everybody knows that you have to perform for your team to advance? How do you answer the bell? How many players that you know, that you've seen, on your teams maybe, have just, it's playoff time, and it's just not worked out. You can't find them. (laughs) You can't find them. That was not Bill Russell. And while we talk about him defensively, and we talk about his shot blocking, and we talk about his rebounding as we have, he could score, but the bottom line is, when you talk about Bill Russell, he was a winner. And that's how he's going to be remembered, as a winner. Mets League won nothing as they still bat in the top of the first with one out, runners on first and third. Make that 2 nothing. Right, Yankees still no scores. They bat in the bottom of the first. So that's, that's when we talk about uh, greatness and we talk about what Bill Russell's been able to do. That's, that's what we mean. Whenever, whenever you... 
needed him to be that player. That's who he was. He was that player. Okay, whenever it was. Whenever you needed a big block shot, he produced it. Whenever you needed a big basket, he produced it. Okay, whenever you needed it, he was there. And and delivered. And like I said, that's not easy to do. Especially in the postseason when everybody knows we got to stop Russell. We got to do something with Russell. So we got it. This is not good. We we know what we got to do. Here's an excerpt from the statement by Commissioner Adam Silver on the passing of Bill Russell. Quote, Bill Russell was the greatest champion in all of team sports. The countless accolades that he earned for his storied career with the Boston Celtics, including a record 11 championships and five MVP awards, which I neglected to mention, only begin to tell the story of Bill's immense impact on our league and broader society. So quoting Adam Silver, Bill stood for something bigger than sports, the values of equality, respect, and inclusion that he stamped into the DNA of our league. At the height of his athletic career, Bill advocated vigorously for civil rights and social justice, a legacy he passed down to generations of NBA players who followed in his footsteps. Through the taunts, threats, and unthinkable adversity, Bill rose above it all and remained true to his belief that everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. For nearly 35 years since Bill completed his trailblazing career as the league's first black head coach, we were fortunate to see him at every major NBA event, including the NBA Finals, where he presented the Bill Russell Trophy to the Finals MVP. Still quoting Commissioner Adam Silver, I cherish my friendship with Bill and was thrilled when he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I often called him basketball's Babe Ruth for how he transcended time. Bill was the ultimate winner and consummate teammate, and his influence on the NBA will be felt forever. We send our deepest condolences to his wife, Janine, and his family and his many friends. That was the thoughts of the NBA commissioner, David uh, David Stern. Oh, my gosh. Adam Silver. Daddy's in Long Island. Hey, Daddy, you're next on 98.7. Yes. Hi. How are you? Uh, Good. You're talking about clutch players like Bill Russell in the playoffs. Then I look at the other end, the guys like James Harden, the guy disappears in the playoffs. Most overpaid athlete right now in sports. They gave him like thirty million a year or something. And this guy hides in the corner, is afraid to shoot in his last playoff game last year. And this guy's done nothing in the playoffs. He always disappears. So I just find it funny, you know. And then you look at a guy like Bill Russell, and a guy was such a great team player, and uh, you know he made other plays around him better. So I mean, that's you know one extreme to the other. I understand, but you know that's what you're saying. There's so many guys today. In the league, that you know, so overpaid, they don't do anything, anything in the playoffs. Well, I'll tell you this, Danny, and thanks for the phone call. Uh, here's the thing about uh, when you find out about James Harden. Yes, James Harden got some money, but once again, he, here's something that I don't think you would have thought that James Harden would do. And what he was able to do was he could have gotten more money. How scary is that? <laughs> He went to he went to Philly and said, I will give up money. Just make sure you get as many players, better players as you can, and then we can discuss our contract. So uh, whatever he got, and I don't remember, your, your numbers may be correct. Uh, I don't remember exactly what he got. But the bottom line here is you are correct. James Harden has not been a great clutch player. There's been a lot of great regular season players in all sports, 
who don't do well in the postseason. Listen, people said that about Peyton Manning before he won his Super Bowl. People went out, and as a matter of fact, there was a former colleague who made it clear that Peyton Manning was the best regular season quarterback in the National Football League because he had not won a Super Bowl, okay? Now that he's got one, that kind of completes where he was. So you are correct. There are a number of players who don't respond in the postseason, and that is all taken into account when we discuss greatness in sports, right? It's, it's, yes, it's championships, but even sometimes if you are performing well and doing a great job in the championship, but your team just doesn't help you out, you can still be great and just not have a championship. So championships and how you measure them is, you know, there, there's variables there, but there's no variable when you talk about Bill Russell. 11 titles, 11 rings, and five MVPs. That's not bad. We'll continue the conversation on 98.7 ESPN. This is the Larry Hardesty Show on 98.7 ESPN.